If you would now take out your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. You know, something really struck me this, this, during this time, during worship, and then during this presentation about being pro-life, and I just, the Lord just put on my heart this word about being pro-eternal life, right? That, that we are, that life is actually all about eternity, and that everything we do as a church and as believers in Jesus Christ is to be about eternity, and we're singing this song, holy, holy, holy. And, and it's one of those lyrics in any song, you can, you're allowed to repeat it over and over and over and over and over and over. Why? Because that's what we're told in scripture we're going to be singing forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And just getting this picture of eternity, this glorious image of heaven, as we worship God, recognizing, guys, that's what it's all about, eternity. And we are wanting to be pro-life. More importantly, we want to be pro-eternal life, knowing that everything is spiritual, and we need to draw near to God, and we need to share the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? That was just an extra today. But John chapter 20, uh, we begin here in verse 19. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word of God. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says this. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came. The doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. Continuing, of course, our study in the Gospel of John, uh, last week looking at the resurrection account, and we are still in the midst of resurrection day. 
And a lot of things happen in this one day. I mean, first of all, Jesus rose from the dead. That's big, right? Beyond that, he appeared to several different people in this same day. And now we're picking up with one of those appearances to the disciples. Where the disciples were assembled in this room together. Now there's a beauty of this, that they came together. The disciples were together in the room, fulfilling even what Jesus' desire was as he prayed in John chapter 17 for them to be one. They're working at being one. They're doing that. Now they, they remember, they ran, right? They deserted Jesus. They ran away in the midst of the arrest and then the persecution and then the crucifixion of Jesus the disciples all ran except for John. And now here they are together, assembled together as Jesus desired, desired, as Jesus prayed for, working even on their unity. And in that, their unity, though, was based on uncertainty at this time. And unity based on uncertainty is going to be really shaky ground, right? Right? They're all concerned, and what we know their unity was focused on at this point was fear. The doors were shut. This is even more likely translated to say the doors were locked and secured, not just shut, not just like, oh, somebody's got a knock and you just open. No, these doors were locked, secured. They were living in fear. Their unity at this time was based on fear. Fear traces back to uncertainty. Life was chaos for them in this moment. They had great fear, and this great fear was because of the Jews, the oppression of the Jews that was already very strong, and we know that, we've studied that throughout John's gospel, but now even more so, this, this oppression gets stronger because of what? The resurrection. Because Jesus is no longer in the tomb. There's even greater fear. Now, as disciples, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should not have fear because of the resurrection, right? But we'll see them transition from fear to joy. We're going we're gonna to get to study that today. We get to experience that with them today. But we have a perspective beyond. Yet do we still live in fear? Because of the persecution that we may face because of the resurrection. That's the, the persecution comes because of Jesus, guys. Persecution comes and it gets even greater because of the resurrection because they couldn't keep him in the tomb. So the Jews are even more angry now than ever before. They thought they won when they hung Jesus on a cross. They thought they could keep him in the tomb with their Roman guard and the seal on the tomb and everything that was put, all the effort that was put into keeping anybody from getting out or getting into the tomb. But there's bad news for them. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, they're even more angry and they are even more coming against the disciples, thinking even that they took him the resurrection brought greater persecution of the church. Listen, as the doors were shut, as they're living in fear, what does it tell us? 
when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst. Jesus came. We saw it happen already. We talked about it last week. We saw it happen going all the way back to Genesis with Hagar, that Jesus showed up in the midst of her sorrow, in the midst of her despair. We saw last week Jesus showed up in the midst of Mary Magdalene's despair. And now in the midst of their great fear, Jesus shows up. And he didn't just show up, he came into their midst. Now, let us notice that the doors were shut. The doors were secured. The doors were locked. There was no way in to this gathering of the brethren. And Jesus shows up. The word here explains an unseen arrival among them, preceding his visible appearance. This is different. This is not like it's been for the last three and a half years as the disciples have walked with Jesus, as they have dwelt with Jesus, as they ate with him and they did ministry with him and they saw some amazing things along the way, but they haven't seen Jesus just appear among them. And Jesus is there. He shows up in their midst. This is now, there is now no physical limitation on the resurrected body of Christ. This is his fullness. This is his deity as he's resurrected. He stood in their midst and either he just appeared or he walked through the locked door or he locked through the, walked through the wall, whatever. We don't know exactly, but there was Jesus in their midst. And that terminology would indicate that he was already in their midst. And then he spoke. You see, Jesus, he sought out his brethren. He told Mary to go tell the brethren, and now he sought out his brethren. Again, this is the first word of reaching the brethren, the church. The message was first to the church being reminded and even having revealed the resurrection. Even more so, the evidence is being made clear to them. And the more evidence we have for the resurrection, the more evidence we have of the presence of Jesus, the more we should be changed. The more we should then tell the world and, and so here Jesus shows up revealing himself and verifying the resurrection at the same time. But the word he has for them is peace. Peace. Why? Because they needed peace in this moment. Now let's talk about what had happened. They deserted Jesus, like I said before. They ran in fear. They were hiding in fear. Peter left because of shame. All these things, this is what's going on in the hearts and minds of the disciples. They, Peter and John, last week we studied, they just left Mary at the tomb. They saw the empty tomb, they believed it says, and then they left her behind. Like, all right, let's go home. You see, their life was complete chaos. 
Everything for them in this time was chaos and fear and uncertainty. And maybe thinking, if Jesus had something to say to me at that moment, would it be rebuke? Yeah, that's what I would be afraid of. They're fear, in fear and in hiding. But as Jesus arrives in the midst of chaos, he speaks a word over them. It's peace. Peace. There's a promise that Jesus made in John 14, 27. We studied it already. He said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, This is the gift of his peace, and as he shows up, he's fulfilling it in person. Peace. He gives them this word to help them in the midst of their chaos, in the midst of their whole world that is turned upside down, in the midst of all the uncertainty and the fear that they're facing, peace. Like when Jesus was on the boat with the disciples, and they were fearful for their lives. The storm had come and he said, peace, be still. He commanded the wind and the waves. And perhaps even in that moment, the disciples would remember the storm when Jesus said, peace. And when he said, peace, in the storm, he called them to faith at the same time. And so here, as he says, peace, he's calling to faith. He gives them this word at the same time he's reconciling them, saying, guys, it's okay. It's okay that you deserted me. It's okay that you're here, hiding out in this room. It's okay to have fear, but I'm going to address it. I'm gonna change it. Peace. He reconciles them in this moment. Verse 20 then, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What brings peace is the revelation of the resurrected Christ. He showed them. It's not just a word. He's not just preaching a sermon because that's not what Jesus did with his disciples. He didn't just speak to them and teach them lessons and say, okay, guys, now go. He said, look, peace. You can have peace because you know it's me. You don't have to be afraid because I did exactly what I told you I was going to do. He showed them his hands. He allowed them to experience now firsthand the resurrected Savior giving them evidence that it's him. He showed himself. And the evidence for himself was his nail-pierced hands and his pierced side. That was the evidence of Jesus. He didn't come and, and even demonstrate all of his glory in this moment. He said, look, it's me, the one who suffered and died for you. He shows himself, and the showing of himself was showing his suffering, was showing his sacrifice. 
And remember that what we study throughout the Gospel of John is a constant revelation of Jesus Christ. The ministry of Jesus was him constantly trying to reveal himself. And now in the revelation of himself, he reveals, he shows his hands, his scars, his pain, his suffering. Because that's his love poured out. And so the response then, it says in verse 20, then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. This verification, this evidence brought joy. Their joy was then verification of the person of Jesus Christ. This is the verification when Jesus says, look, it's me. Here's my hands. Here's my side. And then they're overjoyed by it. Now that joy is incredible evidence for the resurrection. If it wasn't Jesus, if the resurrection didn't actually happen and Jesus didn't appear to the disciples, they would have no joy. They would stay in that room locked up in fear, locked up in despair, locked up in their shame and the chaos that they had welcomed into their lives in this time. But they had joy. Joy, guys, joy is the greatest evidence in our lives still today. Christian, listen. Don't walk around like your life is miserable. Jesus is alive. That should put a smile on our faces. That should give us joy on a daily basis. Listen, our circumstances will definitely mess things up sometimes, right? Our circumstances will definitely put us in a, in a state of despair or sorrow. And that's normal. That's natural, right? But to live in that sorrow, to dwell in that sorrow, it's forgetting the resurrection. To be locked up in fear is forgetting the resurrection. And so Jesus shows up to remind them. Jesus shows up to, to give clear evidence. And then they are the evidence. It's the same for us today. Our joy will verify to the world that Jesus is alive. And that we have encountered him. I've, I've had, we have people all the time that come through the doors of the church and, and, and they get saved here maybe and they walk in. Man, what is going on here? This is different. Why is everybody so happy? Why is everybody hugging each other and singing songs and raising hands and, and everybody's smiling? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive. Because we have encountered him. They have encountered him. They have encountered his suffering. And now they've encountered the resurrected Christ. And he even demonstrates to them my suffering. Look at the victory I have over it. That brings even greater joy. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
Again, now there's a little repetition here, right? But there's a little bit of a different word as before Jesus was addressing their fear, their chaos, and reconciling them in the midst of their uncertainty. Now he brings a greater peace. Beyond their situation and circumstance, Jesus brings peace into their lives. Remember that. Beyond your situation and circumstance, Jesus brings peace peace into your life because he brought peace between us and God. You see, there was reconciliation for them in the circumstance, but what he's saying here further is there's reconciliation between you and God. You can be made right with God here and now. Peace to you. Bringing peace then in all things, the forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, the carrying of our burdens, and the settling of our debts. It's peace. It's taken care of. And then he goes on, he says, as the Father sent me. Now this peace was to prepare them for a mission. So he gives them peace, he reconciles them, then he says, look, I've got even more peace, and this peace is going to change your life entirely, and this peace is to prepare you for a mission, the same mission that Jesus was on. Salvation, redemption. The word disciples means sent ones, and here it is, Jesus sending. As my Father sent me, I'm sending you. What he's saying, look, in the same way, the same manner that the Father sent me is the same way that I'm sending you. And that way was to dwell among, to live among. And even as we read the Great Commission, it says, go, make disciples. The word go is saying, in your going, be making disciples. So as you're going, as you're living life, share the love of Jesus. Share the gospel. Minister that truth and that love to the world around us. As you're sent, he's saying, look, you're, you, as, I, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. And that sending is the dwelling among the people. And in that dwelling among the people, there's relational evangelism, right? With the workplace, with the you know, interactions as we go to the store, or the gas station, or all these things, right? That's the going. But there's intentional evangelism. It's also the way that the Father sent the Son was to teach. To speak truth is to teach. And then further, how the Father sent the Son was to actually suffer. That's not great news, right? But hey, there it is. That's how the Father sent the Son, to suffer for truth and righteousness. So we, disciples, Believers in Jesus Christ being sent ones, we are sent to be among the people, ministering to people as we're of the world, or in the world, not of the world. 
And we are sent to be intentional in teaching the truth. And as we're sent, we can know, as Jesus even said, we will face tribulation in this life. You will face tribulation, trial, suffering. As Jesus was sent to suffer for truth and righteousness, we too, as sent ones, as Christians, that word meaning little Christ's, as sent ones, like Christ, we too are sent to suffer for truth and righteousness. But he doesn't leave them at that because he already promised he wouldn't leave them at that. So what does he say in the, next, the very next verse? When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He knew what they needed. He knew that as sent ones, that in their going and in their intentional ministry and in their just ministry of living life and in all the suffering that was to come, they needed something. They needed help. And Jesus promised in John 14 that helper, the Holy Spirit. And here it is. Here he's then breathing and saying, receive the Spirit. This is an essential part of the process. And so is peace. It starts with peace. And if you are at peace with God, you have been reconciled to God. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid. You're walking with him. You're sent. And with that peace and with that going, we need the Holy Spirit. So let us go in the Spirit. And as he says, this essential part, we need peace and we need the Holy Spirit. What is happening here? There's a new creation taking place. Jesus breathed on them. I want to remind us of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. That is the beginning of human life. God breathed into man. Now Jesus brings a new creation. As God created man, now Jesus creates a new man with his breath. It's a proclamation of his deity at the same time demonstrating himself to be fully God, but giving this, new, this breath of a new creation. And he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. This word of breathe, it's the same manner that Jesus breathed on the disciples. He gave spiritual life to them in the same way that God breathed life into Adam. This was new life. As Jesus speaks of in John chapter three to Nicodemus, this is being born again. New life. And Jesus gave them new life, which in this now here is its new meaning. It's new authority, it's new power, it's a new mission as sent ones. And knowing to, as they're sent, they absolutely needed new life. Otherwise, they would have stayed locked up in fear. 
Before this, remember Jesus said that the Spirit could not yet come because the Son has not yet been glorified. And as we studied that in the Gospel of John, we talked about the fact that the glorification of Jesus Christ was his death and resurrection. So now the Spirit can come because Jesus ushered it in through his death and resurrection. He is now glorified. The Son is glorified and he ushers in the spirit and he breathes this life into the disciples. He says, receive the spirit. And he then goes on in verse 23 to give an example of what that ministry will look like. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is new authority, the new mission, the new responsibility is all about repentance. You guys are on mission, and that mission is to call people to repentance and to claim forgiveness for those who would come to repentance. We have, as disciples, as sent ones, we have the opportunity and the ability and the authority and the responsibility to speak that life, to proclaim that truth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you confess your sins, if you come to a place of repentance before the Lord, your sins are forgiven. We can proclaim that truth. And that's what Jesus is giving, that same authority and responsibility to the disciples. The ministry of restoration, the ministry of transformed lives, which is what Jesus has always been about. Verse 24, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas, oh boy. First of all, he was not present with them. Why, we don't exactly know. But they have a word, Thomas! Dude, you missed it. We saw Jesus. They're already working it out, right? They're like, oh, we're sent ones. We gotta tell people. Let's start with Thomas, our brethren who wasn't there. We gotta tell Thomas. Thomas, you missed out, dude. We saw him. We don't know exactly why, like I said, but you know what's really sad? Thomas was clearly isolated. The rest of them were together. Praise the Lord, they were together. And Jesus showed up in their midst. But Thomas was isolated. Whether it was because of his own fear and anxieties or his own doubt, whatever it was. And we know we call him Doubting Thomas. But he was alone and he wasn't there. And because of that isolation, he missed out on the appearance on the revelation of the risen Christ. The rest of them experienced joy because they saw Jesus. Thomas, still struggling. 
experiencing despair. Let that be a word, be careful of isolation. Doubt, and honestly, like we, we, we call him Doubting Thomas, but he makes very clear here, I will not believe. It's not just doubt, this is straight up unbelief. This is straight up rejection we're talking about here. It's not just doubt. That doubt led to even worse things, but it started with isolation. He wasn't with the disciples. Doubt and unbelief crept in to Thomas's heart. And that's what happens. When we isolate ourselves, we find ourselves falling victim to the lies of the enemy. Doubt, unbelief, they will creep in when we isolate ourselves from the brethren. That's what it's about. Not forsaking the assembling of the brethren. That's what Thomas did. Thomas forsook the gathering, the assembly. It says that they were assembled. The assembly of the brethren. And so Thomas, in this place of doubt and unbelief, he gives an ultimatum to the disciples unless, and he has a long list of requests here, it's not just like, well, unless I see Jesus, I don't believe you guys. No, unless I see Jesus, I see the nail prints in his hands, and I put my hands in the nail prints, then, I, unless all of those things line up, I will not believe. I will reject what you're telling me. In a sense of what he's giving here in this long list of requests, of actual demands, it's like, Unless pigs fly, I will not believe. That's the perspective here. It's not just a little, hmm, I'm not sure about that, guys. This is, you know what, there's a lot of things that need to fall in place for me to actually believe. And you know what, we'll encounter those people along the way, won't we? As the sent ones go, and the first one, the first convert that they're trying to bring along is their brother, Thomas. And they say to him, hey, we saw Jesus. Please. Do we not encounter those things? Do we not encounter people who are like, well, unless, you know, all of my troubles are fixed, unless my financial issues, unless I get a job, unless I find a house, unless I get a car, unless this, 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 and this... Then I'll believe. But guys, God works it out constantly. This is, this is what he does for Thomas. He does the same thing all the time. I'm sure in this room we have many testimonies of God showing up. And when somebody puts one of those ultimatums, well, unless you do this, God, I will not believe. And then what happens? God does it. Because that's how much he loves you. So the ultimatum, it's more than doubt, it was unbelief. He demanded evidence, thinking that it is impossible. All of these stars can't possibly align, so if they do, then I'll believe, but otherwise I don't believe you guys. But nonetheless, Thomas was honest about his unbelief. He wasn't pretending. 
He could have just hung out with the disciples and be like, oh, cool, great, guys. But he needed an encounter personally with Jesus. Verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now this was a week later. Last week it was a Sunday. This week it was a Sunday. The brethren were together on Sunday. How about that? We don't just make it up. <laughs> eh, that looks, yeah, we'll pick Sunday. We'll just go with that. Sounds good, right? They came together. Same scenario as the week before. Thomas is now with them. That's good. No more isolation. And guess what? No judgment cast on Thomas either. We don't read about that. People think if they're isolated and they're away from the church, they're away from the body of Christ, I can't come back. Everybody's going to judge me. No, everybody's thinking about themselves. Nobody's going to judge you. Everybody's worried about how they look in their purple shirt on Sunday. <laughs> but the same scenario, the door was locked because of even greater fear, which means that the oppression got even worse. A week later now, the hunt is on. Jesus is still not in the tomb, and the Jews aren't happy about it. So things got even more dangerous. But that's the early church, guys. They met under extreme harsh circumstances, and they still met. Now, yeah, this is not officially the label of the church, but this is it. This is how it happens. This is the beginning of it here, naturally happening because Jesus said so. And so as they gather, they are living in fear. They lock the doors. They're locked up in the room together as the brethren. They had great fear. They actually had fear for their lives as they gathered. That's how the church began. We've gotten comfortable over the years, haven't we? And amen, praise the Lord we have the freedom. And we don't have to gather in fear. But if we don't have to gather in fear, then why do we isolate in fear? Isn't that what the enemy's trying to do? Bring doubt, isolation, brings doubt, brings unbelief. This is why we found it so necessary in 2020 to come together and not be isolated. Because that's what happens. Isolation leads to terrible things. For Thomas, it was straight up rejection. But they met in the face of fear, ultimately. Yes, they were afraid, and yes, they were locked up, but it doesn't mean they said, hey, let's just do church online. <laughs> let's just stay home, it's okay. 
They did not neglect the assembling of the brethren, nor should we. Fear should not keep us from gathering together. And fear should not force us into isolation. That is a tactic of the devil. But Jesus shows up, same scenario, and he shows up again with the same greeting. Addressing the fear, because that's how it was, that was their gathering, was with fear, and Jesus shows up and says, peace. Don't be afraid, guys. And Jesus knew exactly where Thomas was at. And he came, he showed up for Thomas. As they gather, he showed up for Thomas, and he makes it clear right away. As he says, peace to you, then he said to Thomas. He gave that greeting like, hey, everybody, Thomas, we got to talk. That's the reality. I mean, he's, he's got a mission here, and Thomas is the mission. Jesus shows up for Thomas, and he addresses him directly. And what he says, experience and believe. How, how did Jesus know that Thomas said, unless I put my finger in his, in the, in, in, I see the hands and I put my finger in it and I touch his side, unless I do that, then I will believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, Thomas, remember that thing you once said? <laughs> Imagine in that moment. Now, it doesn't indicate that he actually did, but he believed. Jesus knew where he was at. And he says, he calls out his unbelief. And he says very directly, do not be unbelieving, but believing. So what he says to Thomas, and that indicates clearly to us, it wasn't just doubting Thomas, this is unbelieving Thomas. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And that's why I'm here for you today, Thomas. Believe, it was a command. Believe through experiencing Jesus, experiencing his wounds, his suffering, experiencing his love, his peace that he spoke, experiencing his mercy, his compassion, because he showed up for Thomas. He didn't show up and say, Thomas, get out of here. Guys, listen, I got to talk to you. No, he showed up and said, hey guys, Thomas, let's talk. What compassion, what mercy. Experiencing Jesus through all these things and experiencing, this is a rebuke at the same time. Hey, Thomas, here, here, look, go ahead, put your hand there. Experience for yourself. It's a rebuke, but it's such a gentle rebuke. Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. My Lord and my God, these two things, my Lord and my God, these are titles of deity. Thomas went from straight up unbelief 
to Jesus showing up and saying, you asked for it. And now he says, my Lord and my God, recognizing who he is. Jesus has been revealed. Immediate belief and an immediate declaration of his belief and a recognition of the person of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ. This was a massive change of heart and mind in an instant. That's what Jesus can do. In his great unbelief, Jesus shows up and everything changed. Now he has great belief. And he comes to a place of honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Peter will write, that we may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's Thomas. What an experience this was, not just for Thomas, but for all of the disciples. This was also needed for them to be the sent ones, to watch how to lead somebody from unbelief to belief. How? Through Jesus, through experiencing Jesus Christ, through putting trust in Jesus Christ alone. John would later write in 1 John, he says that we have seen and that our hands have handled. Imagine, he's thinking about this experience with Jesus. He showed up, he showed us his hands. He showed us his side. We all got to experience it. He showed up again so that Thomas could experience too a personal encounter with Jesus. And Jesus then says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. And this is a great commendation. Good job, Thomas. Because you have seen me, you believe, but not everybody is going to see the physical, resurrected Christ in front of them that says, here's my hands, here's my side. But Jesus still shows up, doesn't he? He says, but blessed, beyond blessed. He says, that's good that you believe because you see, but beyond that blessing is a greater blessing for those who have not seen yet believe. There's a special blessing in that for you, for me. We are those who have not seen, but we believe because we have still encountered and experienced the work of Jesus Christ in our life. Why? Because the disciples, the sent ones, obeyed. If they didn't, there's bad news. The sent ones, they walked in obedience. Making demands on God, like Thomas, it diminishes our faith just even a little bit. Blessed are you, Thomas, for seeing and believing, but greater blessing is for those who do not see. Putting our demands on God will diminish our faith. But this was victory over unbelief. Jesus conquered the unbelief of Thomas by showing up. Through his diminished faith, through his despair, Jesus shows up. Verse 30, 
and 31 as we close. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Many signs. Now, we're not just talking about signs that took place after this, and there are many for sure. But John is also referencing there are many signs that have taken place that John's not the detail guy who's going to tell you all about them. But here in these verses, he is very much revealing the purpose of his book, of his writing. He's revealing, hey, the detail is incomplete in my writing, but the purpose is clear. That you may believe. What he's saying after this encounter is, you're the ones, the readers, the receivers of these words, you're the ones who would be blessed. And these things are written so that you would believe without seeing. Don't be like Thomas. Don't even, don't put the demand to say, show me. Jesus will show up, guys. He's faithful. And his desire is that all would come to repentance. But John's saying, look, the purpose here it is, that you may believe without seeing. The signs, they help. But our faith is not all about signs, is it? It's about one person, Jesus Christ. That's what we're about, guys. We want the signs, and John, throughout his gospel, often points us back to that. People wanted signs. They wanted the wonders. They wanted more breakfast, more food after the feeding of the 5,000. They chased Jesus down across the Sea of Galilee for signs and wonders. But that's not what it's about, and that's what John is demonstrating. Look, there are many more signs. I don't need to get into it because it's not about the signs. It's about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Every decision we make, every day of our lives, rising to meet Jesus and walking according to his will. The signs help to reveal Jesus, though, don't they? And he's faithful to even give those when necessary. But what do they reveal? That Jesus is the Son of God. And that belief in Jesus as the Son of God will bring life in his name. His name and all the things that go with it, the power in his name, the love in his name, through relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we are amazed by you and thankful for you, thankful for the intimacy that we can have in relationship with you. And, and we just come before you right now. And as, as believers, we would say we, we trust in you, we love you. Would you just draw us near and continue to work in our lives? And believers, listen right now, pray for the unbeliever. 
Pray for those maybe in this room or listening or watching online that would say, unless I see and experience, I will not believe. Pray for them right now to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, let today be the day. Let down your guard. He wants to reveal himself to you. He's done the work. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. And he desires a relationship with you. That relationship leads to life, eternal life. The one thing that this entire world is fighting for and trying to grab at, to live forever, immortality. We have the great blessing and privilege and through relationship with Jesus Christ, we can pass from death to life. So would you today give your life to him? Enter into relationship with him? If you've never done that before, I invite you. Receive Jesus as your savior. Live your life for him. And so if you'd like to today, I'm asking, would you raise your hand? If you'd like to ask Jesus to come into your life today, Would you raise your hand? God bless you. Amen. Anybody else? Committing your life to him, asking him to come into your life, to be the Lord of your life. Anybody else? You can pray these simple words. If you raise your hand, you can... It's not even the words that, there's no magic in the words, but it is a confession of faith to say, dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I believe in you, that you are the son of God. That you died on the cross for my sin. that you rose from the dead to give the gift of eternal life. I desire you. Would you come into my life and be my Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.